0: I understand there's a, um, there's a mass joint service out at the fairgrounds today, and that may be where some of our folks are, and so that's fine. They can worship out there fine as well, too. Um, but whatever, whenever you come here, you're going to get the full meal deal, okay, just so you know. Um, you find, I, I just want to call your attention to the notes. On the back of your notes, there's a, something called the angle scale, okay? That's for next Sunday, but that's Okay. My administrative assistant got mixed up and she put it on this Sunday. But what it'll do is it'll give you time to study this. This is actually a very profound um, uh, thing. I didn't invent it. I just uh, uh, replicated it and made some modifications. Basically, it describes the journey of faith that we are all on. And whether people start at no awareness of a supreme being or an awareness awareness of God, the awareness that they matter to God, those kinds of things, uh, when they actually come to faith in Christ and then moving into uh, becoming a new creature, um, that describes where all of us are, have been at one point in time. So you can study that this week. And the, the disciples' role well, are what, what are we as followers of Jesus called to be and do to help people move from -9 through +6. So, anyway, we'll talk more about that and also the role of what what God's role is in all that next Sunday. But just wanted you to know that I won't be talking about that this week, but I will next next week as we go forward. Today we're going to talk about change. Change. And I want to ask two questions. First of all, do you need to change? Do you need to change or does our world need to change? You may just look around at your life and say, you know, I, I'm, I'm pretty good. I don't, I don't think I necessarily need to make any big changes right now. Or you may say, yes, there are some areas in my life that I should change. If you don't think you need to change, then turn to your neighbor and, and ask, do I need to change? Just go ahead ask, do I need to change? Just go ahead. You can ask. Okay. Okay. You don't have to tell us the answer. You can, you can also ask your spouse or close friend when you get home. Well, what about our world? Does our world need change? You know, we fought two wars in Iraq for what? For regime change. We had to go back to Iraq, Afghanistan, and now into Syria. Why? To bring about change, to remove ISIS and replace it with something better. We have a country in which the last election was about change. That's one thing that never changes. It's always there. Advertisers want to convince us that we need change. We have the before and after ads. You've all seen them on television. You've seen them on the internet. The before, you have the before row grain and the after row grain. Now you have hair because you, you can grow your hair. You have before weight watchers and after weight watchers. You can lose 40 pounds for $40. Can't I lose 40 pounds for free? I mean, what's the deal? Change. And whether it's an exercise machine or a diet or prescription drug or cosmetic product, it's all about change. And in order to convince someone they want to use the product, they must convince them of three things. Number one, they need to change. Number two, the product will produce change. And number three, the changes it produces are positive. So they're good changes. Well, Christianity, which is our faith, is all about change. It's all about life change and life transformation. When God changes a life, he uses that change in our individual lives to change the world around us. And today we're going to rejoin the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. Um, Paul experienced probably the most obvious and dramatic change of all persons recorded in the Bible. We're going to look at the before and the after of Paul's life in his words when he, he talks about his before and his after. We're going to look at the man of change, God's method of change, and God's message of change as we look at changing lives to change the world. Now, before we get into the text, we'll get into the text in a minute, but um, three weeks ago, we looked at does God care when life is unfair? Okay, Does God care when life is unfair? And this was an account of Paul As he experienced injustice, something we all experience in our life, something called injustice, he was falsely accused, he was arrested, he was incarcerated and put on trial. He survived an assassination plot and was now in the protective custody of the Roman government. He was slated to go travel to Rome and then go on trial before Caesar because he had appealed, this was kind of like appealing to the Supreme Court, he had appealed to Caesar and they said, you appeal to Caesar, we'll go ahead and send you to Caesar. He'd appealed to Caesar after being on trial be, before this guy named Festus. But Festus needed to have some kind of a legal brief or reason to send with him to say, there's got to be a written reason why we're holding Paul for trial and sending him on to Rome. So it's kind of interesting. Uh, these are interesting details in, in the Bible that you just, you just see once in a while. And you say, um, this, is, this is a crazy thing. But in Acts 25... Um, Festus, the guy who's holding Paul prisoner in in protective custody, um, has a a friend, Agrippa, King Agrippa, who came into town. And so he's wanting to get his advice. And this is what he says in verse 25. Um, He says, talking about Paul, he says, I found that Paul had done nothing worthy deserving of death, but because he made his appeal to the emperor, he appealed to the Supreme Court or whatever, I decided to go on and send him to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write to His Majesty about him. Therefore, I brought him before all of you, especially you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write. Okay? He's going to send him on trial. He doesn't have any nothing to charge him with. What do I write? He says, "For I think it is unreasonable to send on a prisoner without specifying the charges against him." Duh. Yeah. So, so that's kind of the background of this conversation that we have and I want us to join King Agrippa and Festus as they begin to ask Paul and Paul gets to testify in his defense so this is Acts 26 it's on page 907 in the Bible in the rack in front of you if you want to read or follow on the PowerPoint that's fine too let's join the story then Agrippa said to Paul you have permission to speak for yourself So Paul motioned with his hand to begin his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jews all know the way I've lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our fathers that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. O king, it is because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I, too, was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them." On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority of the commission of the chief priests. And about noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant, as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and all Judea, and to the Gentiles also. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. That is why the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me, but I have had God's help to this very day, and so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Christ would suffer, and as the first to rise from the dead would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. Now, you can read the rest of it um, in your own time, but I want to just unpack some things from this passage. This, this passage is not your typical courtroom defense. The defense that Paul lays out in front of King Agrippa and Festus is based on his testimony and the testimony about his experience of a changed life, a transformation in his life. This is what Paul describes as himself. So I want to see what we can learn. Let's start with God's man of change. What was Paul like B.C.? What was Paul like before Christ? Well, first of all, Paul, we find out, before was very religious. Said he had lived according to the strictest sect of the Jewish religion, belonged to a group called the Pharisees. He was very religious, probably one of the most religious peoples in the nation, because he was a Pharisee. Very religious. He was also very rigid and legalistic. He was very concerned about the rules, following the rules, and he wanted to make sure that he followed all of the rules and didn't do anything right, anything wrong. Then he was number three. He was highly educated. Paul had received his education in theology and religion under a guy named Gamaliel. Gamaliel was reputedly the leading instructor in that entire region or even that entire century. If you studied under Gamaliel, you were were supposedly the most educated religiously and theologically anywhere. That's where he was. He had this phenomenal education. He also was very passionate, very passionate. There was nothing passive about Paul. He was very opinionated. How many of you work with or live with somebody who's very opinionated? Okay, yeah. They can be very passionate about their opinions. He was very passionate and very opinionated about what he was. Everybody knew where he stood. And this same man, legalistic, religious, passionate, had a mission. He was a fanatic about his mission. He was obsessed with one thing. He was obsessed with stamping out Christianity. Okay, that's who Paul was. He said, I'm going to stamp out this false religion. He, he put Christians in prison. He cast his vote to have them executed. He traveled all to all the synagogues around the region to hunt down Christians, arrest them, and punish them. He even traveled to foreign cities to carry out his mission. He was convinced he was right. Because of that, he didn't think he needed a change. He was trying to evoke change in this world. He was out to change the world through his religion and by stamping out this new religion that was called Christianity. But on this path, Paul had an encounter that radically changed his life. Just radically transformed his life. He met Jesus. He met Jesus. Met the living Jesus. You cannot meet Jesus without being changed. So what happened after that? When he met Jesus, he realized this life he was leading was, was, was a farce, and it was wrong. And so we find after he met Jesus, he repented. He was repentant. He was repentant. In fact, there's an interesting, we read several passages where Paul talks about his background and what he was like. And one of them is in 1 Timothy 1, 12 to 15. In his own words, he says this, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. These are his words. This is who Paul was. This is the before. He said, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord is poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Then he says something that I'm, I'm glad he said. He says, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Aren't you glad you're not the worst at anything? He said he was the worst. And with all of our backgrounds and things that we've done, we can say with Paul, you know what? Paul said he was the chief of sinners. He was the worst. He tried to stamp out. He was fighting the church of God. And because of what Jesus, his encounter with Jesus, his after was, he was repentant. He was also forgiven. He was forgiven. And an evidence, evidence of the fact that he accepted this forgiveness. You know, we, sometimes we have a hard time forgiving and, and, and receiving. For anybody else hard a hard time receiving forgiveness? It's, it's not an easy thing to do. But he proved he was forgiven by other words that he wrote. He, he lists other worst sinners. You know, we, we, in our world, we like to make lists of what's the worst sin and what are the worst sins that we can think of. And so we have all these things that, that we think are the worst sins. And, and in 1 Corinthians, he's writing this to a church. These are churched people, okay? He's writing to churched people in, in Corinth, and he says in 1 Corinthians 6, he said, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral or idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, or homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. He does this list of all these horrible sins, and we go, oh, my goodness. These are awful sins that he listed. And he's talking to church? Are you can't even No, he was. And then he says to them, this, this, this church group of church people, he said, and such were some of you. In other words, some of you were worse sinners just like I was. But, okay, so he's talking to people who had pretty shady past, had some bad things in the background. He said, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. In other words, you were forgiven. You were forgiven. And he said, no matter what these past sins were, just like me, I was the worst of sinners. He says, I was forgiven. He repented, said he was sorry, and God forgave him. He said he was forgiven. Before he was guilty, afterwards, his after was forgiven. He was declared not guilty, as if it never happened. Not guilty. He was still passionate, though. Number three. That didn't change, and and he, in spite of the opposition he had, and we read a lot about it in the book of Acts, he says in Romans, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. In other words, he he wasn't going to turn his back on it because he said it's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. Another version says it's the power of God to change a person's life. He wasn't ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The fact that Jesus died was resurrected, and he told everyone. That was the the whole substance of his message, was the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And he was still a fanatic, and he was changed. Number four, and he wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. So Paul, this before state was pretty, pretty grim and pretty evil and pretty nasty, and here he is, a new creation, somebody that's brand new, brand new, brand new start. And then number five, he was obsessed with spreading Christianity. That's Paul's apart, stamping out Christianity, spreading Christianity, a change. The before and after of Paul are incredibly dramatic, huge huge differences and that's why he testified in court about his changed life his transformation now I don't know if you can identify with any part of Paul today we have a lot of people in our world in Eau Eau Claire and other places that are are very religious like 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 Paul was sometimes they describe themselves or spirit as spiritual or interested in spiritual things or in the metaphysical realm and and there are many people that have that kind of a curiosity or they, they are interested in spiritual things. And, and, and some people are rigid and legalistic like Paul was. They, they try to follow all the rules. And they think that somehow if they follow the rules, they're going to be acceptable to God. And so they follow all the rules, rigid and legalistic. And some people are that. They, they, they try to follow the Ten Commandments and the tax laws and speed limits and, and the golden rule and... and uh, Maybe, maybe you're in that category, too. You can identify with, you know, I I'd like following rules. Or maybe you're highly educated, have a great education, and, and you're passionate about life and purpose. Some are, are committed to a noble cause of some sort, like Paul was so committed and passionate about stamping this false religion out. That he is committed to that. Maybe people are committed to the environment, to peace, to education, aiding our children, feeding the world's hungry, rescuing the sex traffic, They're pro-life. People are many times passionate about making a difference in our world. But those efforts are the wrong effort. There's a more fundamental, foundational change that must take place. And like Paul, he was going the wrong direction, fighting the wrong battle, doing the wrong thing going the wrong thing. And no matter how passionate, no matter how religious, no matter how educated he was, he was doing the wrong thing. He needed to be changed first. And that change was going to be with an encounter with Jesus Christ. That encounter with Jesus changed his heart. Changed his heart. Changed him internally from one person to another. There was this distinct before and after, and he was transformed on his inside, his human nature was transformed. Back in the 80s and 90s, that was the last century. Some of you weren't born yet, that's okay. In the Pacific Northwest, where we were living, we went on a prison building spree. The thinking was that if we can just build more prisons and we can get criminals off the street, we can, we can get them in prison, and, and then they passed the three strikes law and they took more and more criminals out of the the streets. And so basically they took people that were trouble, troubled people, and they put them in prison. And so they relocated the problem and they thought we found a solution. The problem is as the prison population grew, they became overcrowded and various counties and states had to pass laws to release criminals early since the jails were overcrowded. So now they went back on the streets and then crime went up again. Well, The solution to crime is not incarceration. It's not education, it's transformation. They needed to be changed in their heart. See, we look at all these problems and say, this is the solution. No, the solution for Paul was not that, his solution was a heart change. The solution, the true change that we need in this country has to do with the heart, has to do with Jesus Christ encountering people and changing and transforming their their heart. And whether the problem is drug addiction, or alcoholism, teen pregnancy, abortion, crime, anything, the answers are not incarceration or education, it's transformation, changed lives. And Paul wrote it, he said, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, new creation. Jesus coined the phrase, born again. That's what it's, that's what in John 3, a guy came to him and said, I, I want to be right with God. What do I have to do? And he said, You need to be. Born again. That means start a new life. It's the internal transformation that Jesus came to bring. And in verse 8, there's an incredible, incredible question. Paul says, Why should you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? Now, you think, where did that come from? Well, he was preaching that Jesus was raised from the dead. He was saying that God can produce new life. He's saying that transformation can, be happen, can happen if God makes it happen. You know, here, here's the God of the universe who created all things and put everything into orbit and did all that stuff. And who says he can't raise dead, dead people? But he's saying God is the one who appeared to me through Jesus. And it's his power released that transformed and changed my life. Why should we consider it incredible that God creates new life? Many of you can testify to that, that when you gave your life to Jesus, he transformed your life. Life instantly became paradise. No, it didn't. Still tough. But Jesus transforms our life, changes our lives. There's the before and after. Paul uses that as his defense. So what is God's method of change, of change? I don't want to be simplistic. Paul lists five elements of God's method of change, and I want to read it in verse 17 and 18, where he says, "'I will rescue you from your own people "'and from the Gentiles. "'I am sending you to them to open their eyes, "'turn them from darkness to light, "'and from the power of Satan to God, "'so that they may receive forgiveness of sins, "'and a place among those who are sanctified by faith.'" In me. The first step in that is to open our eyes, open our eyes. Now we're not talking about physical eyes, eyes in the physical sense. This has to do with the spiritual. In fact, the, the irony when he, he writes this is that when you go back in Acts 9, when he encountered Jesus Christ, he was blinded physically. He couldn't see. He was blinded physically, but for the first time he saw Jesus. He apprehended who Jesus was, and he began to identify Jesus as alive, Jesus the Messiah. He saw Jesus for the first time. God opens our eyes by first helping us to see Jesus, understanding for the first time that after the Garden of Eden, when when humankind went their own way and rebelled, God was this searching, seeking God who wants to reestablish relationship with his people, with people. And so he sent Jesus to do that. This is a seeking, loving God that was culminated in Jesus coming and demonstrating and then dying and being resurrected again so that he could send his Holy Spirit so he could dwell in us. That's a lot of stuff. That's all theology. But it's seeing Jesus. That's the beginning to see Jesus. And then he saw himself, to see ourselves. Paul saw that all his religion, his education, his passion, following the rules was not enough. He was a sinner in need of saving. He needed to be changed, and he couldn't do it himself. And many times we we don't understand that we see, okay, we need to see Jesus, but then we need to see ourselves. We can't, in our own strength and our own effort, save ourselves or be right before God. And that's Seeing the truth. When we see the truth, it sets us free. Open our eyes. So Paul said, I was sent to open the eyes and then I was sent to turn them from darkness to light. Darkness to light. Now we don't don't experience what I call true darkness very often. A couple weeks ago, we had a power outage at our house. Happened about two in the morning. and the reason I, I woke up is because um, we, have, we sleep with a fan on, and the fan stopped. And when something stopped, I, I woke up and said, look, and it was just totally black. So I got up to see what was going on. There had been thunder and lightning and all that other stuff. So I, I walked And Of course, you always, have, um, you always have different lights in there. You have street lights. You have night lights, smoke detector lights. There are always lights somewhere, but you look outside. This night, there wasn't, it was absolute pitch black no light. We don't see that very often, but that is darkness. Now, you don't get rid of darkness or you don't get rid of light by turning on darkness. You get rid of darkness by turning on light. Darkness and light cannot exist in the same space. Light always displaces darkness. And so Paul was given the job to turn people from darkness to light. And Paul here is talking about spiritual darkness, of ignorance and fear and evil. Because Jesus came to bring the light of truth, fearlessness, and good. What what kind of darkness do people live in today, the, the evil and 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 the fear? Lots of different things. And he was given a mission to bring light into darkness. Turn from darkness to light. In letter C, he was given the mission to transfer from the power of Satan to the power of God. Satan to God. Now, here Paul is talking about a change in loyalty or allegiance. Satan has his kingdom or his rulership. God has his kingdom and his rulership. That's, that's That's a big topic when we talk about that. When Jesus said, the kingdom of God has come. Satan had been ruling for a long time and Jesus came and he he broke into the kingdom of darkness and he established his kingdom, which looked totally different than anybody thought. But basically, this is moving from the kingdom of Satan, the power of Satan, to the, the power of God. And God's method of change is for us to transfer who we serve. Our loyalties, who we obey, who we follow. Who are we aligned with, Satan or God? Whose values do we live out? Whose thoughts do we think? It's, it's, again, it's, it's either or. It cannot be both ends. One of the greatest travesties of today, the primary reason that the church in many ways is so powerless and we have so little power to make positive change in our world is that people try to align themselves with both kingdoms, with both Satan's kingdom and God's kingdom. It's called compromise. Compromise. Whether it's in materialism or entertainment or loyalties or lifestyle, priorities or values. We're just, we're just like everybody else and, 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 and we just have a different social club that we visit on Sundays. For many Christians, church is just a circle of friends that they kind of interact with. There's not real community. There's no accountability. There's no prayer and caring. Many churches are filled with people that know a great deal about each other but do not really know each other. Just know all about each other. Don't know, they don't really know. That's why we have intentionality when it comes to developing relationships in and, and connect groups so that we can actually get to know each other beyond the surface. Good morning. How about the Packers? The twins doing well. The brewer. You know, we have all these conversations going on. And instead say, tell me, how is it with your soul? What's happening in your life? Share something you learned this week. How can I pray for you? How can you pray for me? There's a depth of of interaction that we have so that we can have that connection. The fourth part, after open our eyes, turn from darkness to light, transfer from the power of Satan to the power of God is, is to receive the forgiveness of sins. Receive forgiveness of sins. 1 John 1.9 says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. This is a huge key to change. As I said earlier, we have a hard time accepting forgiveness sometimes. And Paul had done some horrible things. He catalogs, I mean, he, he did what we wouldn't do. I wouldn't catalog and write out all my sins and say I'm the worst of sinners possible. No, he cataloged all those things. And then he confessed them before God. To confess means to agree with God that what you did was wrong. And then it says he will forgive. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and he'll cleanse us. He will change your heart, transform you, cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That means he removes real guilt. We deal with guilt feelings. We say, man, I feel guilty. Well, you can deal with with guilt feelings after you get real guilt taken care of. He deals with real guilt. He forgives it, and he transforms lives, appropriating forgiveness and the restoration of of a right, right relationship. We've all done things that we regret, things that if you stop, sometimes it just comes to mind, and go, man, I can't believe I said that, I can't believe I did that, I did this, whatever, and this, this regret and this feeling that maybe God will never forgive me for that. There is no sin that you can possibly commit that God will not forgive. He will forgive any and every sin Paul said he was the worst. You can't even get that title now. He said he was the worst. So no matter what you've done, he said he was the worst, and God forgave him. And he used him. He restored his life, and he changed life, and he used him powerfully to transform the entire globe. We are the recipients of that forgiveness received by Paul because it's that Paul who helped plant all these churches, and we are that church today we continuation of Paul's churches that started back then. Jesus came to bring that forgiveness to you. To you. The fifth method of God's change is to be placed in the community of the sanctified. Sanctified, what does that mean? We, we, we use that word sanctified here and there. It means basically joining the community of changed persons. Okay, changed persons. Sanctified, sanctified means we're, being transformed, you know, we, we come into faith with Jesus Christ and he saved us, and then we, we keep growing more and more like Jesus over our lifetime. Sanctification means becoming more and more like Jesus. Sanctification. So it means joining the community of changed persons who are also being changed slowly into the image of Jesus Christ. We're becoming more like Jesus. Nobody's arrived. Nobody's got it all together yet. We'll get it together when we go on to glory and we die and go to heaven someday. But we're in process, which means we're all in this journey together. And the method of change is to place us in this community of people that are on the same journey that you are on. Same struggles, same temptations, the same failures, the same ups and downs, the same doubts and all of those things. He places us in the community of the sanctified a place to belong a place to grow so do we need to be changed God wants to change us by opening our eyes turning us from darkness to light transferring our loyalties from Satan to God giving us forgiveness of the past and placing us in the community So what is our response? What what do we do about this? Paul spoke to people all the time and gave a message of life change that we need to hear today. What is that message? What are the action steps that we can take to move forward here? God's message of change, verse 19 and 20. Verse 19 says, So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then those in Jerusalem and all Judea. I preach that they should repent, turn to God, and prove their repentance by their deeds. Repent. First of all, repent. We talked a little bit about that in regard to forgiveness. In the original language, it means to change one's mind. One writer says to repent means to realize that the kind of life we're living is wrong, and that we may adopt a completely new set of values. Repentance involves two things. You say only two? Yeah, well, mainly two, two things. Sorrow, being truly sorry. Not sorry we've been caught, but sorry that we've done wrong. It's not like getting a speeding ticket, man, I'm sorry I got caught, I should have seen that guy. No, it's true sorrow for breaking the law. This is true sorrow, says I am truly sorrowful. And then surrender. Sorrow and surrender. Surrender is to resolve that by God's grace, from this time forward, I'm going to allow God to change me. Okay? I can't change myself, but I can surrender my will so he can change me. God's power in us. Repent means to change. Second, we're to turn to God. Many times we live with our lives with our back to God. We turn to everyone else or everything else first. Some people just live their life, life in what, what, what is described as a passive indifference. In other words, eh, God's irrelevant. I'm just going to do my thing. They just ignore God. they spend their whole life just kind of ignoring God. And other people are actively fighting against God, doing evil things and actively. You know, whether it's passive indifference or active rebellion, that's what the Bible calls sin because it's separating ourselves from God. And to repent is to turn away from that sin. To God. Many of you remember the story of the prodigal son or the prodigal God that that Jesus told, told about two sons. Uh, This man had two sons. This one son wanted his inheritance early, and he went. He got it. He went to a far country. He squandered everything. Lost it all, and boy was he sorry. He was sorry. We'd all be if we lost everything we ever owned and, and. blew it. We blew it. He was sorry. But he went beyond sorrow. He said, I'm sorry. I'm going to also, he returned to his father. He went back to his father. He was repentant and he went back to his father. He turned to God. So repentance is one thing. Feeling sorry is one thing. But it's also turning to God and entering that or re-entering that relationship. That's the story of us story of us. We may be wandering in a far country in rebellion or just ignoring God. Or some of us are just wandering from our potential. God says, I got a great plan for you. And you go, I don't want it. I want to do my own thing. God, our Father, is just waiting for us to come back. To realize it, repent, and return to God. And the third message of change is prove repentance by our deeds. The proof of true repentance and the proof that we have turned to God is a changed life. A changed life. If there's no difference from the before and after, I doubt there's a difference. I doubt somebody's given their life to Jesus. There's going to be a difference. In James 2, 17 to 18, it says, In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds. I will show you my faith by what I do. Now, we don't earn our right relationship with God by what we do. But we do right things as a result of our relationship with God. The changed life is proof that we came into relationship with God. A changed life. Lifestyle, change thoughts, change values, change actions, change. And every changed life makes a difference. It makes a difference. Before and after. For Paul, it was obvious and dramatic. Question is, where are you today? Where are you today? One little interesting snippet at the end, verses 28 and 29. Agrippa, after Paul had shared this life change, he said, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to become a Christian? And Paul replied, short time or long, I pray God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am except for these chains. That's Paul's prayer for Agrippa and my prayer for you if you've not experienced this life change I invite you to do that today let's bow our heads for a moment Father we thank you that you've given us new life thank you for Paul who was the worst of sinners and it's like we can't do anything worse than that but you redeemed him you met him he encountered Jesus you forgave his sins and he became a new creature a new totally new person and I pray, Lord Jesus, that, that you would do that in our lives here today. If you can just leave your heads bowed for just a minute. If you, if you desire to take that step today, it'd be asking for forgiveness and asking Jesus to come into your life and to change your heart. If you've never done that, you would like to do that today. Would you just slip up your hand and put it right back down? Anybody? Thank you. Somebody else? Anybody else? Just to let you know, you don't have to do that here. You can do that anytime, any place. Sometimes people hear the message and they go back home and they process it and think about it and pray about it, and then they decide. If you do that, please let somebody at this church know because we'd like to know if you've made that change. Father, we thank you that you change lives. And I just pray, God, today that you would continue to, to move your church forward. We're part of that unstoppable tide of, of righteousness and truth and life change that you put together way back then. And I pray that you will envision us to know that has changed, as lives are changed, that you're going to change our world, too. And all of that is unstoppable. So we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.